Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good to see you again, as always, my friend. Scott, my man. My man. Scott in the house. Scott in the... Have you been a long-term uh, Saturday Night Live watcher? Oh, yeah, John you, Schneider, man. Yeah, making copies. Making copies. Scott Meister. Scott Arino. Scott Arino. Yeah. So, was it... I can't, it was making copies, right? And then yeah, one day yeah, the copy machine copy, was taken yeah. away to be repaired, and he brought in a coffee maker, and so it was like, you know, making John... Making coffee. Making coffee. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why that was funny. That was hilarious because I think some <laughs> of it is like you. There's that person in a lot of offices that's like that way. So it's like you're kind of you know it. it you're like, oh, that's this guy or that's that person. You know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I guess that's true. I just haven't been in an office for a while. I know. I, I don't. I'm yeah, trying, to, I don't trying really, to remember what that was like. It's yeah. It's the same. I'm the, I'm the same way. You know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Couple things. It's freezing everywhere here. I mean, it's cold here, but. In, in the Philadelphia area, like my dogs were like even cold walking this morning. But man, there are places that are like colder than in Antarctica in the United States right now. I suspect that there are a lot of municipal officials in the U.S. right now who, you know, are making calls to their colleagues in Canada for advice. Like, so how, how do you guys, what, how do you live? <laughs> Low expectations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the answer is, um, uh, you know, building design for the, like in Canada, you know, a lot of buildings are designed for the coldest day. Yeah, not so much here. Yeah, Maybe in like so. uh, in like Minneapolis, there's some of that. Like, I mean, there's certain cities mm-hmm. that there's a little of that, but in the United States, it's just not widespread. So, yeah. So what does that do? How does the, the rhythm of life must change? I mean, the streets must kind of empty out. It's got to be a difficult time to be in street retail right now. Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, but there's still people. You know, I don't know. People are still hustling and bustling. They're still kind of. I mean, they've oh, they closed schools and stuff. You know, certain colleges. I like colleges, even where where they're like primarily residential. I've I have friends that teach at places like that, and they've ca- canceled classes for a few days. Hmm. Just people let them know. So, in in Canada, more common like colleges and certainly universities. Uh, a lot of them have underground tunnels connecting all the buildings. Yeah, so they, they have that stuff in like them. Minneapolis. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very kind of... The other thing to I want to say, so our my wife and I's 2008 Volkswagen Jetta kind of needed to go to the shop and the repair cost was going to be more than that car was worth. So we got a new car and I spent entirely too much time in the car dealership. And we walked in, I, I walked in, I felt metaphorically like a big luscious grape and I walked out like a drained <laughs> raisin. But we got a great car, a Kia Nero, which is a hybrid. It gets like, I don't know, it's, it gets like average 48 miles to the gallon or something. It's like the nicest car we've either of us have ever had. It's like we've never bought a new, like, it's like we bought a new car together, leased it. And I didn't know this. Also, Kia is like the most reliable car right now. Like, it's amazing. But I listened to our podcast on the stereo system in that car. It sounded so good. <laughs> so uh, that's where you were going. Yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. Where is Scott going? Is he going to like make some kind of allusion to climate change, or nah, global nah, warming, nah, and uh, uh, why we should all be driving hybrids? Like, no. It's like, dude, you should listen to our podcast in my new car. Oh, it's, it's awesome! It sounds so good. <laughs> oh no, there's no climate change because 
there are there are places in the United States that this week will experience 100 degree temperature differential feeling. Like it's going to go from like negative 60 with the wind chill, or whatever, to like 50 50 degree. Like yeah, no, there's no climate change. No, okay, well, no. Well, I, so so there is the silver lining to take from the deep freeze. Well, so I mean, I'm my family's in sort of Western Canada where it gets. Um, you, I mean, you think this is cold? <laughs> where it gets cold. Uh, and, uh, and so chatting with them and, and, uh, I said, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I know what it feels like. Cause here in London, it's like minus one, minus two. It's really cold. I got no sympathy, no sympathy, but like it's, it's negative, it's negative here in London and that's cold for people here. I mean, the Europe in general, uh, but especially the UK is kind of a country that was built before insulation was discovered. Right. So there's, there's very little, there's very little to distinguish indoor and outdoor except what side of the wall that you're on. That's, I'm not into that. Yeah. Actually, back in the day, um, I mean, well, I, I know it was back in the day at Oxford before my time. And I assume it was probably pretty general. There was coin operated heating and lighting. Wow. So, so like as a student, like you'd need a, pocket full of coins to get through the cold nights you just keep loading up the machine <laughs> I, i'm not I, that's that sounds oppressive yeah well it's just backwards no it's not backwards it's just you know they, they you know this is a country and and most of europe is like this where you know buildings have been sort of upgraded and retrofitted for for centuries right it's the same building it's the same basic building we've just you know we've we've added the electric light Right, and and we've and we've added the electric fire. <laughs> All right, um, yeah, but sometimes it's an awkward. Sometimes the past and the present kind of awkwardly coexist. So let me uh, ask you this: So we've established that the inclement temperature experiences and weather, you know, phenomena are not equal in the United States, Canada, or the UK. What about income? Segue to our discussion. <laughs> Oh, that was a that was there a, is, there was a what, expert yeah. segue. Expert segue. There we go. That was a powerful expert. It was you very, didn't even notice that it was we had very, changed. I just topics. used the word powerful like Trump. I mean, Putin made a very powerful denial. Like I made a It wasn't a good transition. It was a, a powerful trans. So much power in the transition that my lights flickered. <laughs> and you know the thing is, you wonder like sometimes you're using you're using adverbs. Like that don't mean anything. Like, what is it to powerfully deny? Like, how how does that make a difference? It's like I don't know if you've ever watched this YouTube channel, how it should have ended. Oh yeah, where yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. They like they poke they poke holes at all the kind of obvious plot plot holes in in um, in films, and they did this one of like Harry Potter, how it should have ended, and it kind of shows Voldemort and and uh, and Harry Potter facing off against one another in their final duel, and Voldemort says, "I'm pointing my wand as hard as I can." <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, it's, it's great. Like, why did they? Anyway, but uh, but I kind of feel it's I, the same pointing, way sometimes. I'm pointing the said, wand like... <laughs> very powerfully. It, I, yeah. so pa- my wand is so powerful. Oh boy, you know, Melania will say something about that. Exactly. Inequality. Okay. Yeah. Inequality. So, so you mm. wanted to talk about in, in, income inequality. It's it's great because I think about it. I, I mean, I suppose everybody thinks about it more, but. If you follow, you know, the news and political discussion and cultural discussion, at least in the United States, I mean, this is huge. Like, this is such a yeah. big issue. I, so that's actually what sort of brought it up in my mind is, you know, the kind of um, the 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 kind of the rhetorical agenda that seems to be coming out of this new class of um, 
of uh, of Democrats in Congress, you know, talking about you know top tax brackets of seventy percent, talking about a Green New Deal. I mean, talking about whether it's a policy failure that billionaires exist, and then getting very very strong reactions from uh, from the right, from conservatives, from Howard Schultz. Uh, that that you know, that kind of that kind of thinking, that kind of critique of uh, income and wealth inequality is, I mean, is not just unusual or um, or unfamiliar, but actually un-American. Howard Schultz, of course, is the Starbucks CEO, self-made billionaire who is now running for president. Who, in a sixty minutes interview, told a story about his dad beating up beating him up in the shower. It was awful, but it, that was even not that. It was kind of boring. I'm like, how can you make a story like that? That's like, that's like the, the, the it, it's cinematic and a biopic. How can you tell it badly? But he did. <laughs> I I admit I didn't watch the 60 minutes video. I I, I figure I'm, I'm going to wait until it's relevant to pay attention to to this man. But if you have insomnia, so, it's better than Ambien. Oh, okay, well that's saying quite a lot. Um, so actually, I I I'd be interested just to kind of hear you. Paint it, paint the picture for a couple minutes for for me and our listeners, like sort of from from where you're planted in the United States. What what is this conversation that's happening right now? Yeah, one of the things that's interesting, I think, that is mildly hopeful is that at least no one. It's not like a climate change where you have so many skeptics about it. I, I feel like by and large, most people acknowledge it. Like people on the right, the left, people that are for more re- redistributive kind of uh, political solutions and people that are against them, most of them don't deny that it's a reality. The question is, what's the cause? And are we sort of better off than other kind of peer nations in the industrialized world? What's the relationship of, of the 1% and their drastic increase in wealth and the seeming stagnant income growth of the middle and work, working class people. And so, again, it, the, the, there's not generally a sort of denial, even by the most conservative people in the political discussion. And I don't say that most conservative as, oh, that's a terrible thing. I'm just saying, like, generally, uh, certain kinds of inequality or, you know, systemic racial things or, or gender things, they're often more spurious. But on this, there's not a kind of spurious attitude. It, the question is all about causes and solutions. And so that's where the, well, I think, debate like rages. Or, or so interesting to hear you say that, because I thought what you would what you would instead say is that the debate rages not around sort of causes and solutions, but um, is there a problem here? Because I think that, you know, I think that what you have on like sort of the the AOCs of the world who, you know, came up with, which I thought was like a, a startlingly provocative statement in, in sort of the context of American political discourse that, um, and, I, and I forget exactly how she put it, but basically making the argument that um, the the existence of billionaires in society is somehow a, a, like a, a social failure, right? That there there shouldn't be those kind of um, vast accumulations of wealth beyond what one could possibly sort of usefully use it for. Um, she said, in, in a world where there 
people still getting kids getting ringworm in Alabama, which ringworm is like a fungal thing. I mean, it's not so much <laughs> like, I mean, I could think of any other, many, many other systemat- systemic <laughs> you're, you're, things she could wait, have you're, said. You're saying that the, that the, the analogy was bad I'm, because I'm ringworm, ringworm is a fungal Yeah, it's fungal. You go to the gym, it's, you're, it's steamy. You get, you know, this is very interesting. But yeah, no, but, <laughs> and, but, but uh, yeah, yeah, that so, was provocative. And, and, you know, some of these sort of left of center proposals around like wealth tax or her 70% income tax. These policies are not unpopular in polls. Even you know, it's interesting too that Medicare hmm. for all polls at like uh, over 50% of Republicans uh, think that sounds good. So it's, it is interesting. This, the, it's like we're swinging pop, the, the swinging populist pendulum is like, <laughs> which, yeah. which shows that there's I, probably a real issue here. It, I, yeah. And, the swinging populist pendulum. That's interesting because I, I mean, as, as someone who brings sort of more historical perspective to a lot of our sort of contemporary discourse, you know, I, I can't help but think back to sort of Margaret Thatcher uh, here in this country, um, you know, talking about public goods and, and basically saying that there's no such thing as a public good, right? There's no such thing as society. There are sort of individuals who live in society and, and government and sort of the rules of society are for fundamentally for individuals. Now, in that kind of, you know, very strong sort of, you know, neoliberal way of thinking about the world, and by neoliberal, I, I, I just mean sort of that, that economic logics make sense everywhere, that, you know, everything should ultimately be thought about as a market and a competitive game. And, um, and, and that, that competitive game is sort of how to advance human well-being. Um, you know, in that world, uh, wealth inequality, like income inequality, is kind of irrelevant, right? It certainly isn't a subject of you know moral condemnation. Uh, you know, it's just the individual consequences of people playing the game, and some people make life choices to develop, um, you know, skills that are uh, more valued in the marketplace than other people, and you know, and and that's our. That's our autonomy in operation to, to kind of step in and reallocate the outcomes of all these autonomous choices we're making. That would actually be harmful to our freedom. Well, right? so, I, well so I mean, that I think, I think that's I, kind of like the hegemonic idea that is. I don't know, though, because I think no. within the. OK, let's just say also for the purposes of this podcast, like let's do maybe next week we'll do the kind of critique of neoliberalism and we'll, we'll look a little bit maybe at socialism and, and some of the. But let's just assume like the neoliberal world like let's assume you know kind of arguing from within that framework about inequality for an episode or something you yeah might- no I, and, and maybe like like asterisk i'm not i'm not necessarily advocating that view but i'm trying to paint that i think that's a that's a pretty I, I, prevailing I view that ev- is being ev- well everybody that's a neoliberal right will acknowledge that inequality is uh the is it, capitalism needs inequality like like a plant needs water right but then there are a lot of people that will say functionally you know just like if there's not if there's too much water or not enough water the plant doesn't grow there's kind of optimal thing flood or, or aridity will kill it and also that there's aridity aridity Good word aridity i'm playing aridity. a lot of words with friends these days so <laughs> are you the winner generally i, I win a lot me- i mean i, I my okay. wife beats me about 70 percent of the time i'd say but you know uh you know, but I'm a, you know, I'm I'm decent. We'll, we'll we'll have to play. I don't play. Maybe you can get me hooked on it. Oh, it's fun. It's a great game. Yeah, well, have... we'll play. We'll play until I discover if I can beat you. And if I can't, then I'm just going to bow out and. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Find a weaker player. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not hyper competitive, so I I I play with people that beat me. 
Yeah, you know, you you have people like you, you have people also that the, like uh, uh, Warren Buffett and others in the who are who are clearly benefits beneficiaries. George Soros, all sorts of people. You can think of all these kind of uh, high profile, you know, Devos type of people that think that well, okay, while we can't have equal outcomes short of a kind of you know drastic socialism or marxist or kind of thing we can and have a moral obligation to do to have equal uh an equal playing field and and the more we can spread the wealth and share the wealth that the better society we are so i mean i think that there yeah, are there's people- this kind of inclusive liberalism narrative i think right right yeah. versus yeah. versus yeah. the kind of a, a little more austere and, and sort of maybe social darwinian kind of and, and even yeah. the social yeah. darwinians it's not like they don't wouldn't like to see more people do better but they just don't think that eradicating income inequality through redistributive things are necessarily gonna i mean they think that the market will if the better the market does actually these things will work out better. So, I mean, those are, you know, those are sort of, I mean, I think that's where the terms of the debate politically are Hmm. in the United States, right? And with maybe your outlying Cortez and people that, I mean, even Elizabeth Warren said she's a capitalist, right? But but the the Cortez and more hard left are like, hey, look, capitalism is inevitably unjust and and, and this inequality that's built into the system is, uh, I mean, this is sort of like we were talking about before around democracy, right? Like, you have people that the the neoliberal, whether you're sort of left or right, inequality is a feature of the system, not a bug. Where the AOCs of the world and 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 that are left or left at her point on the spectrum or further left are think mm. it's a bug and it's a fatal bug. It's a bug that kills the whole operating system. Yeah, and and what's so interesting about that and and the kind of because one thing kind of stepping back and looking at it is one feels that this statement that no 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 this isn't a feature this is a bug has has a, a kind of receptive audience right now that is holding on to it that is reflecting it that is speaking it that is nurturing that and you know it is so contrary to the logics of you know kind of the the neoliberal agenda around which uh, you know, so many different sectors of society are, are are now you know being kind of governed by these logics. It's almost Foucauldian. Um, that that it, one imagines that you know in a, in a kind of pre-social media age, it would be very difficult to have the courage to kind of speak to that hegemonic discourse, this alternative, and say no, this is a bug, and no, we've got to we've got to overturn these logics and start thinking and valuing very differently about these outcomes and change them. Um, and, and just imagine how, like how impossible it would be to even get airtime for these, um, you know, almost radically contrarian messages from sort of the way most people are thinking. You know, but it's interesting. Now too, it's possible. Like a guy like Howard Schultz is banking on, well, a couple of things like that independent means centrist, which it doesn't in America. I mean, most independents lean to Republican, Republican or Democrat, and also that it means moderate. It, 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 here's the thing. He's kind of articulating 
the the sort of I'm socially liberal, right? And so I'm for diversity and expression of sexuality and and for plurality of understanding of family, that sort of thing. But I'm economically fiscally conservative. That part of the well, Ameri- like most Starbucks conservative, <laughs> right, right. but actually not. It's it's very interesting that okay. that part of the electorate. Some recent polling have shown is almost non-existent. It's such a small sliver. There are lots of mm. people that are socially liberal and economically liberal. They're okay with right. higher okay. taxes, right. more redistribution. Right. There are a lot of people that are socially conservative and economically conservative, right? They're, they're traditional mm. family values people and they, mm. you know, are, are sort of lazy affair. Then there is a growing and significant people, and this is me where the populism comes in, that are socially conservative, right? Too much political correctness. Mm. We need some old religion, right? But economically liberal and are for redistribution or not anti- as anti-government. The, the mm. kind of socially... Mm. Uh, liberal, liberal kind of economic, uh, conservative. economic conservative limousine liberal rock of a republican that is an insignificant demographic right now interesting that's really interesting huh huh i mean as as a canadian i hear that and i immediately think back and this will only make sense to other canadians who are listening and but i think back to the 1990s when uh the the liberal party uh you know i don't know if you'd even remember the canadian prime minister his name was jean chrétien this uh frenchman from Shawinigan. Uh, amazing character but but you know for about 13 14 years they governed with the majority in Canada and that was very squarely and even and even to this day although they're probably more economically liberal now where the liberals played and they kind of held the center ground as the natural governing party of Canada by being socially liberal and economically conservative and kind of the argument is that that's kind of where most Canadians are you know and 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 relative to sort of our american um cousins to the south of the border, it's probably true that Canadians are, in general, uh, far more socially liberal. I mean, for example, on things like uh, abortion, where it's, I mean, it, it, it isn't even a subject of law in the Canadian context. It's just, well, that, that's that's a private matter between women and their doctors, and, and the law is silent on what to do there. there there's just not the same kind of... Um, social conservative infrastructure to mobilize for some kind of political or legislative expression of a value choice on on a lot of things that you know sort of form um like the very the very identity of uh, of of some you know some of the most important political debates in the US context yeah, what's interesting to me is this social, con- socially conservative kind of traditionalist, economically liberal, that real populist that could kind of go, that, that, that you know, the, a lot of these people... Who's an assuming, example of, of, of the economically liberal social conservative? Well, I mean, look at uh, most of the populist parties in Europe, right, that are sort of uh, suspicious of immigration, want a kind of more traditional national identity, and yet they're not against increased welfare state spending and things like that. It's just, they don't want outsiders to get them. You know, there's a kind of, there's that pot, that kind of populism, Hmm. right? Like it is, 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 it's interesting too, because if Hmm. you're a Republican, I mean, you, you've, you've banked on a socially conservative, economically conservative, like working class and middle class. Right. Hmm. But as they get, it's interesting because if you had asked, uh, like Republicans used to, poll like something like you know can do we need more government to do you know like do more to improve the welfare of the people you know all, all the I mean, republicans used to pull like under 30 percent all the time like it, it, you know it, the it, even younger ones like under 40 percent now everybody i think republican and democrat the whole populace in both parties 
is over 50%. Now, for Democrats, it's much higher. But everybody is, it thinks that more government involvement is okay. So that's the, the thing that mm. makes the kind of political landscape interesting because if, if you're the kind of traditional conservative market-driven person, and, and on, which on in, income inequality would mean – Hey, the market will fix it. You know, the market, we're just, you know, it's, there's more prosperity. Regardless of, we could talk in a minute about empirical data on that stuff, but it's just the cultural mood is not mm. that mood, <laughs> at mm. least in the United States. Hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess that's where I, I think that one of the big questions that at least forms in my mind as I watch uh, what seems to be um, like a much, uh, a much bigger conversation about inequality uh, now taking shape in the United States. And, and, and in a way, you know, bigger than, well, no, this would be interesting to actually think about, is it bigger than, but in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and you had the sort of Occupy Wall Street movement, you know, there was a, 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 a cultural moment there where there was a strong sort of mobilization of voices against against the present sort of economic order, which had somehow managed to both create the global financial crisis and yet emerge from it, you know, relatively with its, with its, with its legitimacy intact. And, and, and then now, so what's the difference between that and now where there seems to be far more just sort of open space or, or creative space politically to to challenge um, the legitimacy of some some you know pretty strongly held uh, views about how the economic system works and what is acceptable within within the system and yeah for me again it's 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 very kind of clarifying that Howard Schultz uh, the Starbucks CEO would would talk about the idea of you know drastically higher tax brackets um, at the upper ends of income as as un-American. I mean, it's trying to make the argument that that no, those concepts are out of bounds from the the kind of the realm of legitimate discourse within this country. And and, and you know, and he might just be five years too late because I, I feel like you know five years ago people would agree with him that yeah, that's just that's just kind of crazy talk and 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 so i wonder if you know the i don't know where i'm going with this but what i'm seized with is so i go back to you know people like hannah arendt and uh you know michelle foucault who talked about you know neoliberalism within a broader set is sort of neoliberalism is an example of um how how sort of some ideas in society become hegemonic and uh talked about you know what he called governmentality that 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 there's it's not like there's any one person who's holding it up but there are these ideas that are accepted as logics as truths throughout the whole of society and they just become stronger and stronger and stronger until you know they they're like the air that we breathe yeah, yeah. The, the, the less you talk, the less you talk about them, and more, and debate them, and the more they're assumed, and mm. and and provide the foundations and undergird mm. the assumptions of debate. Then you've got an hegemonic ideology, right? Where, where so, you, you, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, is you know, is what was happening in 2016, you know, with with Trump's election or with Brexit, is what is happening now in sort of on on, on the the political left? In the United States, and you know, and 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 
rewidening the discourse about inequality and taxes is this kind of are these all examples of the same thing which is a a kind of new plasticity with hegemonic ideas a new a new capacity to uh mobilize responses to you know the governing logics of society sort of mobilize them big enough and fast enough that there's a there's enough of an audience that sees them as legitimate to kind of nurture them, protect them, sort of protect them within a coalition of people who who are committed to that idea so that they they actually do live to persuade more people and to to contest and to rival the logics that that are kind of you know governing society. Yeah, and maybe, maybe I mean, I think just with the plurality of sources of information, like, you know, there's the water cooler at the office where they're making copies, right? Like, if you said the Washington Post, NBC News, New York Times, PBS, like, okay, it's a fact that these are respectable journalists. They get it wrong. But now you have less of a common shared consensus around data sources. So that allows, I think, mm. probably more, it, it allows for a certain, the Overton window can move, right? Like you can put more things in well, the Everyone's debate. talking about the Overton window a lot these days. I like the I thought I was window. a total geek when I, like I the Overton know, window. read about the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, does, so the Overton window, as I understand it, is really just sort of the, the, um, the, the, the frame that defines what are the ideas that kind of belong and what are the ideas yeah, that, that yeah, don't like, belong what, kind of the, the frame that sets our expectations yeah like like bernie sanders you know w- medicare for all sounded radical when bernie sanders suggested it in 2016 now like a democrat has to say oh, i'm open to it at least you know because the over window right. has moved as, as a condition of running yeah. for the democratic nomination yeah yeah so so maybe that's a good way to think about it is is what we're seeing here just more and more evidence that uh, the Overton window, which, you know, probably when it was first articulated as a theoretical concept, was sort of almost seen as something that's fixed within the frame of a house, pretty hard to move. Um, are we discovering that actually this is like a sliding window, right? It's on tracks and it's 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 actually pretty easy to uh, to move it back and forth, particularly if I mean, and maybe the easiest way to move it back and forth is to identify what's an idea that's currently outside the window. And and talk about that, and and then get people to to pay enough attention to it. So here I, here's the question, right? Does I think this is the kind of thing that will I think shape political debates all over the place, right? In the developing world, I mean the developed world. Does rising income inequality it, it mitigate? Is it a problem for social mobility? Right? Like this is this is something that the United States kind of part of our founding myth, right? Our ethos is, hey, we're moving away from an aristocratic fixed social structure and, and, and because they're we don't have that and we have a dynamic society that you can you know the american dream you can climb the light howard schultz is an example of it right a guy grew up in the projects in, in brooklyn i think and now is a self-made billionaire and lives in you know seattle is the is the does rising income inequality mean that people can't get ahead anymore so yeah let's talk about that for a bit and then like behind that is i suppose uh a broader question of the the ethics of income inequality and and how big a problem this is for society. And I guess then one clear argument of why this is a problem is if you know extreme income inequality 
leads to social immobility, and that's a bad thing. I suppose, hmm, you know, for, for, for me, the interesting thing to say here is to think about what's happening within higher education. I spend a lot of time sort of in that space. And, you know, what you can certainly, I think, say uh, about higher education is that sort of the last 25, 30 years of, you know, the, the globalization of higher education, the, the, the transition from thinking about education as a kind of public good or a personal development thing to, you know, a much more economic language of uh, investing in your human capital uh, or as a society uh, becoming competitive in, you know, the knowledge economy. That as, as the whole of higher education globally, but especially in the developed world, and we'll have to have a, a separate podcast episode where we talk about the developed versus the developing world, because I think that's another example of conceptual framing that we need to problematize, but set that aside. Um, but as, as higher education has sort of increasingly put itself in service of economic logics, you've seen a pretty dramatic increase in inequality among universities. Um, so you've got sort of top-tier universities and you've got everyone else. And you know the top-tier universities uh, charge a lot more than they could 25 years ago because there's, um, there's uh, a kind of unspoken promise that is frequently delivered on that if you get into the top-tier university, then you're going to get into top-tier employment opportunities and you're going to end up with kind of a top-tier lifestyle, right? And, and if you miss getting into a top-tier university, then you know maybe you still will achieve a top-tier lifestyle if you're an outlier. Um, but chances are that you're not. You're going to sort of be in this precarious middle of you know, many jobs that are being automated away. And so, it, at least from the higher education space, you, you can see, I think, a pretty clear trend that as inequality increases, as sort of inequality of opportunity increases, so too does inequality of, of outcome. And I guess that, you know, fundamentally, we should be pretty worried about that because if what we're doing is building a society where, you know, relatively few people have the opportunity to experience some kind of fulfillment, um, then surely there's got to be a better social model that extends that that sense of fulfillment to to more of its members, right? And 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 you know, and now we get into sort of Aristotelian questions of like, well, what is the purpose of society, and what is all this for? Um, and you know, unless we've got some robust argument for why some people matter more than others, um, you know, the the best argument is probably about you know creating opportunities for each individual to to develop their excellences to be all aristotelian about it um and and yeah so uh, now i'm on a very long ramble again but but my experience from higher education is that uh, access and outcome are are pretty closely related things okay let me just say that i was surprised to find this study but uh there's a study by uh, a scholar at berkeley emmanuel says who wrote a paper recently around uh, along with Thomas Piketty, who's like one of the famous, most famous economists in the world. And they studied uh, Amer American, you know, upward mobility over the 20th century. And the idea right. is like, if income inequality hurts social mobility, then you would, ex you would expect that as inequality rose, social mobility declined. But they found that's not really true, that, that, that 
over the 20th century that the United States mobility rate was remarkably stable. The second thing you would assume is that countries where there was high inequality, higher inequality, like the United States, compared to most of our European, uh, you know, peers or places like Japan or places like Australia, New Zealand in the world, you would assume that places with higher inequality, where we're pretty high, I think we're maybe the highest in the industrialized world, would have a, a lower mobility rate than ones, you know, than our peers. But that they found that's not true either. That uh, really, that it, it our mobility rates are not do not correspond are not lower, despite the fact that we have more inequality. So I mean that's just an, now that's not an argument for inequality or addressing it, but it's just hmm. it's just now I mean the counter argument to that would be well we haven't seen over the long term that you know the, the the rates of inequality we have now are sort of more increased and 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 in, in, in a couple of decades or whatever we'll see the impact that, that that's possible but hmm. just empirically with what knowledge we have it doesn't seem to be the case that that you can't get that your ability to get ahead to that has declined that we that we're just as social socially mobile a country in the united states a, a, with our income inequality than you know when when in decades previous we were there was much less inequality and where you know and and you there's just as much mobility as you know if you were in western europe hmm Interesting. So I guess I have two thoughts to that. One I is, sound like the <laughs> champion of neoliberalism right now, and that's not my intention. <laughs> I'm just throwing out data. No, no, no. I mean, like, so because so I guess that's why I thought let's spend some time talking about inequality, because I think that it it intersects with, you know, so many big questions, kind of the fundamental questions of kind of like where what is the game that we're all playing together and what is society for? And, you know, it's also why I feel that you know, in some ways, tax policy is one of the sexiest sort of public questions to think about, which, you know, like tax, I mean, it's just snooze. But but also, it seems like it is this profound, it's like this profound and very explicit um, choice that a society makes about how how much credit does sort of the public does society take for each of our individual circumstances and how much responsibility does society take for each of our individual circumstances uh, versus individuals and and that you know that that profound ethical and moral question gets sort of summarized in 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 what the tax brackets are and who we tax and how much we kind of appropriate for for public things uh, but so specifically on this inequality thing and, and mobility so one, I mean, I almost want to pull a Trumpism here and say, like, I think the intelligence people need to go back to school. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> or like, or like a good social scientist. I'm not going to take. I mean, that's interesting. That sounds really counterintuitive to me. So I'd want to go into that study myself and understand. So you say that mobility hasn't changed. Like mobility between. So how are we defining mobility? And and if it's sort of like movement between different you know, like quintiles in the income distribution, then, you know, are we talking about movement from the lowest quintile to the next lowest quintile hasn't changed or from the lowest to the highest hasn't changed? Are we talking about income mobility it, or are we just talking about that? Or are we also talking about wealth mobility? Because a lot of, you know, the the wealth gains in it, in, in terms of what is ballooning inequality isn't about income. It's about assets and asset valuations and property and stuff like that. So, you know, I could probably, you know, if I wanted to, 
I could make somebody argue at me for about a week before I would concede the conclusions of that paper that you've read, which, you know, and I might still have to concede them. But, you know, I think that would be maybe a boring exercise right here. And that paper does not also deny that, like, you know, there's studies that, you know, kids who are born in poverty, you look at their brains, they're the same as affluent kids, their frontal lobe structure and stuff. And after several years of poverty, the frontal lobe develops differently because of stress. And it's not saying that there aren't horrible conditions and that there aren't inequalities that that are related to injustices and and things like that. But it's simply just saying that, like, the, the income inequality... Has mm. not made it so that uh, it, we're in a caste system or a feudal system. It, it's still like it's there's a dynamism mm. in the economy that mm. allows for people to get ahead. Like the American for dream is not is not dead kind of thing. Like that that's yeah, I mean right. that's that's the that, that would be the argument. Right, and then sort of more about the question of how how broadly accessible should the American dream be? But I, I guess and, and the argument know, the, is it's no less accessible empirically. Hmm. In, now than, now than in the fifties or sixties, it you know it's it's it, that that as many people still advance socioeconomically roughly as as during times when you know that there's not hmm. that much of a difference between hmm. very equal periods and and drastically hmm. unequal periods. And also, there are studies I was looking at related data that 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 when the income. Uh, it, you know, in any unequal societies, when the income rises for the one percent, it, it rises. The, the the working class and middle class see benefits from that. Like, there's not, you know. Now, the question is, is it unequally distributed? And I think if you were arguing that yes, it is, you know, okay, it is unequally distributed. You look at like uh, over the last forty years, the percentage of profits that come from corporations uh, as a percentage of GDP has gone from six to 12%, right? It's doubled. At the same time, the this is America, uh, American statistic. At the same time, the percentage of GDP devoted to labor has gone from 52 to 42. That's like a trillion dollars annually, right? Now, it's interesting because that trillion dollars in the corporate gains could be put into new job creation or increasing salaries and that sort of thing. But it's not. It's by and large, it goes into profits, right? So that those are decisions that corporations mm. make. So, you know, some mm. of, so some of these things, you know, this would be the, the, the counter argument that, that there are factors though, that, that could uh, make it, it seems like it could, could, could make the inequality, could mitigate the inequality that corporations could do. But yeah, when you see CEOs, salaries go from, you know, decades go from like 30 times the lowest paid worker to like hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, so you, you could argue that, that the system is, is at least, while there might be just as much mobility, we could have mobility and a lot more equality if, if certain decisions were made. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the lazy fair person says, well, the consumer decides what is valuable, but the consumer didn't decide, well, let's uh, put all that money into profit and not into, into raising wages or something like that. You know, there are decisions at the top mm. that people with power make that contribute to the inequality being where it is and and i guess that's kind of the um like the the high level not even argument but aspiration that um you know people who who want to advocate for just far more redistribution of income and wealth in society making is that look i mean if we if we have such extreme concentrations of wealth um these individuals, they don't need the money. And I guess, yes, they could spend it on, you know, 
socially good activities, um, you know, saving, saving the world from malaria and things like that. But if we had to choose between private individuals sort of exercising some philanthropic motive to make things better off for everyone and the public political process making those decisions and those choices that that maybe the latter would be better like i i feel so what's interesting is it seems that inequality and the discussion about you know do we change sort of how much we redistribute 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 thank you in society is kind of you know it it feels like sometimes it's it's there's this philosophical uh, sort of collision of two very different logics like one is well what have i earned what is owed to me sort of morally ethically uh or at least three. Two, two is this economic logic around um, how do we incentivize people to be creative and innovative and to drive useful changes and technologies into society. And then the third is, well, sort of what about the, the, the public interest? And, and what about sort of how would we sort of more efficiently or directly build the good society that we all want to live in. And one of the first things we need to do that to build that society is, uh, you know, some, some monetary resources to direct investment. So, you know, shouldn't society as well have a, just a claim to be able to grab those resources in order to invest them in the things that it wants. So, you know, it, it, it's a question that kind of, it brings up everything. It brings up what, what, what am I owed? It brings up how am I incentivized to do things? And it brings up, you know, what do we all want? What kind of world do we want to live in? Yeah, it's interesting, too. Like, you look uh, at look Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Sam Walton. They founded some of the biggest corporations, right? You know, Apple, Microsoft, Walmart. You know, that in American history, imagination, you can think of. They all founded those corporations when the tax rates were twice as what they are now. So did they... Make some kind of cosmic mistake. Oh, the incentives are not here. You know, like, like they clearly were incentivized, right? Or, or you look at the, you know, a couple of years ago, capital gains taxes went up to twenty five percent. So theoretically, right, you quarter the incentive, but you know, uh, innovation and, uh, and sort of Silicon Valley is increasing. The stock market is going from. Uh, Twelve. This stock market said twelve thousand up to seventeen thousand points. Or like it's all this stuff is clearly people are responding to incentives still. So this idea mm. that the, the I think incentive is more complicated than the sort of laissez-faire neoliberal would tell you. And, totally, and, it's it, so much more complicated than it's ever talked about in popular media. And, and there is actually really good research that's been kind of done about like the marginal dollar and what will people do, and that people will do so much more to avoid losing a dollar than they will to make another dollar. And and you know, there's a lot of. I don't have it top of my head, but I know it's out there. Like, sort of pretty because it involves money. A lot of money has been spent researching. Like, what would optimal tax rates look like if the only thing we're really interested in is kind of incentive effects? And and you discover that yeah, like over you know a few million dollars, you can tax all you want. It's not going to change yeah, people's choices yeah. and behavior. Yeah, there was an op-ed piece. I'll try to find it for the show notes. But a venture capitalist wrote the New York Times a couple of years ago during the tax debate. And he said, "I've never made a, a decision." Pretty successful guy, like a billionaire. I've never made a decision based on tax policy. 
Like I've never made, you know, like that's not. And so that's, I mean, that's what's interesting. And right. Because however much the government takes, I'm still going to get more. Yeah. If I make yeah. The and, and you know, what incentivizes, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, capitalists and venture capitalists and, and corporations is market size. And the more people that have more money, the bigger market. So, mm. so you know, so there's more goods that can be bought and sold. And that's so this is the, the argument against inequality on, on just a neoliberal grounds is that you know when you have a big burgeoning middle class those people spend a lot of money right as opposed to a big burgeoning upper class they spend you know the, like with the, the, the way that money is distributed it, it bottlenecks right like because you can only buy so many yachts you can only buy so many 300 yeah, no, that's dinners. right like, so it, it, you know so yeah at the at the kind of I mean, we're talking so many high-level concepts, so I'm actually like going a few layers down to just talk about economic growth policy. But if we're just talking about like what does the research say about economic growth, the the evidence base is pretty clear that you know as income inequality becomes extreme, it actually becomes a drag on economic growth for exactly the reasons that you gave. That you know once you've got so much money that more is just throwing it on the pile. It doesn't change your consumer behavior really at all. And so this this money, in a sense, is stagnating when what you would like it to do is to circulate in the economy. But the other the other topic, and I'm not I'm not nearly as good at making artful segues as you are, so I don't quite know how to how to make, do it. But, but it's I, not I artful. To... <laughs> make it powerful. We want a powerful. We want to make segues great again. <laughs> By the way, do you remember when, and I forget the inventor's name, came out with the Segway? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was going to be, it was going to revolutionize transportation. This sucked, dude. But, you know, what, what's so interesting is, you know, many years later, uh, what has revolutionized sort of transportation is the, uh, like, kind of the, the, the crowd, not the crowd shared, but like the, the sort of, what, 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 what do you call that market? Like for the, for the bicycles and now the scooters and the electric bikes that you kind of pick up, drop off wherever you want. Oh, the bike share. Bike share, right. So bike sharing, right. That's basically what the inventor of the Segway was talking about. He just, he lacked the um, the enabling platform infrastructure of kind of the, the post-Airbnb world to, to, to realize his grand vision for transforming society. Anyway, that was a complete segue from the Segway I wanted to make, which I wanted to talk a bit about this idea. And it kind of relates to neoliberalism and the preponderance of sort of respect for economic logics in society today. But this idea that, you know, successful business people make good um, political leaders as well, right? Sort of, you know, so Howard Schultz's Starbucks CEO, are basically he's making this, I don't know if he made it explicitly, but this implicit argument that like, I built a successful global corporation. So I, I, I'm, I'm someone we should be trusting to make good business decisions. Yeah, I, I mean, it, Trump, it, Trump I, made the same argument with far less credibility. So, so you have a political science degree, a doctorate from Oxford. I, I feel like I'm just a good talker, but like, or at least a mediocre talker. I talk very powerfully, but there's a burgeoning <laughs> political consulting business and, you know, telling the pe everybody, all right, be quiet, be quiet. Some people are coming to see daddy right now and going back in a state and showing him charts how America needs you to run for president. And then <laughs> like, you can make so much money. Like Steve Schultz, who ran McCain's campaign in 2008, is, is working for, uh, or Steve Schmidt, is working for Howard Schultz. And it's funny because, now, of course, that 
they're looking at the same obstacles, right? That everybody else is saying, you know, third party problems and everything like that, that, you know, but what do those people do? Well, here's how we'll overcome them. And if you're a guy like Howard Schultz, right? What are you used to doing when you have problems with an acquisition or other market? Pro- you hire the experts, bring the lawyers, and you spend enough money and have enough ingenuity, and you just overcome the problem. The electorate is more is trickier than that. <laughs> mm. So, so it's just some of the sort of thinking that actually allows these consultants to make a pretty healthy living off people like this, the mm. third party person. Now, Bloomberg was resistant to this. This is why he spent all that money and had the sense to say, well, I can't win. I spent all the money. I ran all that. I can't. And he's a pragmatist, you know, but Schultz, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I could just be touring the country looking for billionaires to get in the, <laughs> we could make a pretty mm-hmm. good living on that. I, I guess that's true. That's true. And it's also playing off the ego. I think that it's also a kind of, it's not just an argument they're making to society. I think it's an argument that they internalize for themselves. If I've been successful and it's completely unlike this in any other domain. But if I've been successful in this domain business, I could do something then I can be successful Absolutely, in any yeah. other domain. Yeah. And, and I think that the reason why we have that, and I think it's kind of an unreflected and unearned legitimacy that we kind of, oh yeah, you're probably right, is because uh, nowadays, you know, economic logics operate in so many other domains. Uh, but it's very interesting. I want to bring in sort of another angle to this question. And it kind of relates to you know, are there are there social harms in the accretion of vast pools of wealth behind sort of individual actors? And one argument you could make, and I, I've certainly, you know, I've I've been with people in policy rooms where, where like they're they're breathing fire this argument because they feel it so strongly. But that you know, when extreme wealth comes to let's say the policy table. It, it displaces and silences other voices that ought to be heard. So, for example, and, and it usurps other people's uh, political voice and power. You know, so, for example, and this is almost never talked about unless you hang out with people who work in kind of the global health community on, on development health. But, you know, the, the, the Gates Foundation, um, when it works in developing countries and it says, okay, you know, we're going to work on... Uh, public health issues in Malawi, well, they've got so much more budget than the public health budget of that country that sort of the citizens of Malawi, their views and voices on what their health priorities are, are completely irrelevant. And all that the Department of Health and the Minister of Health really cares about is what matters to you, Gates Foundation, Right, right. That we can tell align with in order tell, to get yeah, some of your budget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tell, yeah. tell us what you want to do, and we'll provide and, and our we'll country as yeah. a yeah, yeah, and we'll do it. Which you know, which, and, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, it, it it might be the responsible thing to do if we can attract that capital. I mean, where else are we going to get money like that? But um, but but you know, this capital never comes in the form of we're just going to give you you sort of public health authority of your country more money. And then you run whatever your domestic political process is to decide for your own people to decide how the money should be spent. Right? It never happens that way. And 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 great wealth is almost never deployed that way. Right? I, I've got my agenda and I want to see it roll out. And so there is a there is something kind of fundamentally anti democratic about the the um the the kind of the deployment of enormous wealth 
even when it's being done with philanthropic motives. And so, you know, maybe that's a bit of a theoretical argument, but you definitely see it play out in the real world, especially in the developing world. And I wonder to what extent that translates into, you know, American life. I mean, how much is society skewed by the kind of gravity of enormous wealth? I can think of it just one quick example. A couple years ago, right? Like the energy companies in Texas were just, you know, killing the roads with trucks. It, it just, you know, just the heavy kind of going back and forth with gas and oil and stuff. And it, there was all these parts of Texas where the road was just shot. And people proposed a, a, a tax on the energy companies to pay for re- repaving re- roads that, you know, there was empirical data that hmm. a lot of the wear was it. Well, it got voted down. Like, and so now this is that they put gravel road. <laughs> they just put gravel on top of it. And like, here's huh. the thing where like, cause there's just That's enough. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, there, you think of like how, hmm. uh, labeling things with GMOs gets beat and sort of thing hmm. just because Monsanto hmm. and stuff have enough money. Hmm. It's not saying hmm. banning genetic. Hmm. It's just, Hey, you can know like legitimately the label. Hmm. Like, so these things, I mean, in the 18th century in the, in the United States, the biggest threat to individual liberty was probably a centralized government. Now it, it, it's, it's, it's multinational corporations at least. I mean, at least there's, a, they're, they're a good competitor because, you know, they, they, if you, if you make environmental laws, they pick up and go to another place. Like, you know, it's just, it's, there's a lot of power there. I suppose, you know, the other issue is that if there is a, uh, like a, a, a kind of, a, a, a government bargain that, um, that, just allows kind of wealth to accumulate completely freely, which right or wrong, I'm not saying, but one of the consequences, right or wrong, is it does, it's an enabler for the kind of gold rush phenomenon, right? It's like, oh, they discovered gold in California. And so everybody goes to California and pans for gold. From, From a societal perspective, way more people and way more like gold mining companies start up than is useful for society. We really only need 10 people there to mine the gold and provide it for the jewelers that need it and for Fort Knox and stuff like that. But instead, we've got 10 million people because they all want to be the one who gets rich. In a similar way today, you know, there probably is a massive over allocation of, uh, you know, just of, of people's lives and dreams into uh, you know the tech sector and and building apps and all that just because that i mean the there is this kind of gold rush enthusiasm to become the next you know mark zuckerberg and and society probably doesn't need you know so many people running into you know finance is similar here in london i mean it's just so many you know smart people that um you know, I encountered the Oxfords and the Cambridges of this country. And, and what are you going to do after graduate? Oh, I'm going to go into finance. Well, okay. You know, I mean, do you love it? Because if you love it, that's great. But if you're just chasing, you know, chasing the big paycheck, boy, you know, there are some some giant and fascinating challenges in the world today that you could really, you know, sink your teeth into and help with. And and we'll hire somebody to do the math for us, you know, or to like figure out the debt financing so that we can do this stuff. So. That I think as well is if there is if there isn't at least a really thick social conversation about like really is 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 that all we're chasing and 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 really like more and more is better and better then 
there isn't a lot going on in society to kind of problematize, especially for young people, just the choices they're making about where they're going to spend some of the best years of their life. Um, and, and you get these, I think, like sudden swings and vast over-allocations of, you know, just some of the, the best potential that we're putting on the earth, you know, chasing after stuff that at the end of the day, it's just money. So, like, okay, here's my concluding 500,000 feet above the stratosphere. <laughs> like, yeah, it's interesting because Weber's Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism, like he's trying to think why does Western Europe, you know, and, and England and the United States become this dominant economic force when, you know, if you're looking at the 15th century, early 16th century, China's is just a good bet. Even certain parts of the Middle East look like a good bet. And he says, look, there's urbanization, but there's urbanization in China too. There's, it looks at Protestantism, which did two things. It, 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 like Luther's doctrine of calling, that God calls the individual Christian sort of, and you're, that basically you're not determined primarily by your family. Like you have this idea, even in, in China in the right. 16th century, I think it's like um, in, in the Bible where it says Mary and Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem for the census. So do you go back for the census to the place where you're born, right? And Weber thinks there's a kind of promises and makes people a little more individual. And the other thing he thinks is that this doctrine of election that you're chosen, uh, you want to sort of show that you're blessed and chosen as you want to confirm that you're, you're chosen by God. And so it makes you work hard. And, and yet there's this inner worldly asceticism because if it, God blesses you, uh, you know, by you're the elect, if you're productive and successful, but if you're ostentatious with your wealth, then you're showing you're not elect, you're, you're sinful and you're reprobate. So what do you do with it? You either give it away or put it into capital, right? So you don't like, so then, you know, now there are different reasons that people, a lot of theologians and religious people say, well, he doesn't have the psychology of Protestantism quite right. We could, and there's different things we could debate that, but what he thinks that this innerworldly asceticism, and he looks at like actually no place previous to Protestantism can he find from and he was a study of this great student of world religions and philosophy. No kind of religious or philosophical tradition valorized wealth. It, it, being rich was either neutral or or bad, right? Avarice, right, greed, like right, it was never right, right. it was never something moral, right? It, you know, the Catholic Church made saints of poor people, right? Yeah, Plato, Aristotle, they don't extol the merchant class or the it, Okay, so 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 Weber kind of ha- latched on that as you know, is this the variable that explains the difference? Right. Is there the spirituality and kind of ethos and, and you know, look at John Wesley, the great British Methodist, mm. well, he's actually an Anglican but gave birth to the Methodist. I mean, he said you sh- a Christian should make all uh, uh, the money they can so that they can uh, say so they can save all that they can so that they can give away all that they can. So it was this sense in which it, it, the, the, the there was a responsibility on the on the wealthy person or whatever. But it's right. but then or that look, wealth was an instrument of virtue. Right, and then you look at Ben right. Franklin's autobiography; it reads like a secular version of all this stuff, like a, you know, a, a sort of Puritan without some of the religiosity, but all of the prudence and so. I think that like that sort of valorization of the wealthy, right, of the job creator, of the other, that yeah. has a long tradition in the West, going back to the roots of the 16th century. That is worth in another episode untangling. It would be, yeah. So that'll be worth for us untangling in another episode. And you know, I, in sort of you know my wet dreams, I would wish that somehow some of that kind of questioning about, well, how did we? come to valorize wealth and what have some of the benefits of that been and also maybe some of the costs would somehow enter into public discourse 
especially in the U.S., is it looks like there is now a kind of, as you say, it's almost like um, you know, if you're going to run, if if you're going to run, you want to stand up for a leadership position within the Democratic Party today. You've now got to recite some kind of uh, allegiance to the idea of a of a, a radically different redistribution of of wealth and income and then you got to go in, ask in America and you got to go ask mo- ask to get money from the corporate people that help exacerbate <laughs> well that that's right and so that's something well that'll be another we should i hope we're keeping a list of these other things we have to talk about and we have to roll up this one but you know the, the this basic paradox of how does anyone ever sort of uh, make systemic change happen because we are all at the same time sort of within the system and and we can never step outside of the system in order to make the the change happen which is which is why i think you know there is something just sociologically interesting in you know the election of trump in brexit in you know uh, the ability of aoc to suddenly make legitimate the call for radically different tax brackets that maybe there is something about momentum and scale if we're going to talk about changing the system that makes the idea that doesn't belong in the current system nonetheless um, have, have a life and a vitality while other people decide, could could this be the new normal? Could this be the new normal? And, and, and that kind of di- di- new dynamism of systemic changes is, is actually, you know, both – both terrifying and tremendously exciting. If you think that that might be part of part of just the new sociological reality that uh, that we live in today, whatever reality we're living in, I'm driving around in it in the Kia Nero, which I like. Woo! <laughs> in stereo, yeah, ah. man. Okay, Chris, can't, I can't wait for good, a sweet yeah. ride. Yeah, always good to talk with you, and we'll talk again next week. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.